0: from new york city this is lexicon valley a podcast about language i'm john McWhorter. my parents did not speak albanian and neither do i and this week let's kick things off with one of my favorite musical pieces ever No, it's not Christmas, but that is my very favorite Christmas carol. And the reason I'm playing it is because in case you have some little ones listening, I don't want to give a certain something away. But I wanted to mention that when it comes to my five-year-old, my wife and I have not even kidded around. We have made it clear to her that a certain narrative about a certain hefty and strangely generous resident of the Arctic is invalid, not even pretending. And because she's been quite clear about that, I assumed that when she lost her first tooth a couple weeks ago, that the whole idea that she was batting around about a certain fairy, I assumed that she had already developed a certain layered relationship to that being something whose truth conditions were not what is often given to other children. And I was quite surprised that she started crying. She actually thought that this fairy, if I may, was real. And I said, well, did you really think that we would allow some person to bust into our house in the middle of the night and put objects under your pillow. And she actually, on some level, believed that, I think partly because the week before that, one of the movies on our docket was Pinocchio, which I'd never gotten around to. And of course, her favorite character had to be not Pinocchio, not the whale, but this fairy. Listen to her. Good Geppetto, you have given so much happiness to others. You deserve to have your wish come true. little puppet made of pine, wake. The gift of life is thine. Now, I know at this point that you're all wondering, what does this have to do? Well, this is what it has to do with the subject of the podcast. We're talking about street myths, such as the ho-ho-ho business and this fairy business. And there's another one, and it's one that I hear about from quite a few of you. And I've realized that this is such a common misimpression that it is my responsibility to quash it. And that is the idea that it's natural for languages to simplify. It's something that a lot of people get from old books and, frankly, even some new books, that languages get simpler over time. They start out complex, and then over time they streamline. You know, as appealing as that idea is, or at least it seems to be to a lot of people, I certainly was suckled on it in my youth. That is a street myth. It's a street myth, like the idea that if a woman is carrying a baby high, that it's a boy. It's a street myth, like the idea that drinking a lot of coconut water before you go to sleep will ward off a hangover. It just isn't true. It is a street myth. And by street, I don't mean that they're vernacular men standing on avenue corners, sucking on Lucy's and talking about grammatical simplification. But this idea is just everywhere. And where it comes from, because these myths always have some kind of basis, in fact, is the reality that... Old English was a language a lot like Latin. It was jangling with case endings, and it had verb conjugations much more complicated than anything we can imagine. And that Old English became today's modern English, where instead of using all of those case endings, we tend to use word order. We're a language where, at least in the beginning, it seems quite easy because you don't have to memorize conjugation tables. You don't have to memorize endings for the genitive and the dative and the accusative and all of that. That inevitably is a lot of us's model for how a language changes over time. So, Old English goes to Modern English, and then there are other languages like that. If you happen to be acquainted with Old Persian, Old Persian was even fiercer than Old English. Modern Persian is a lot like Modern English, and if you want to go further afield from where most of us sit, Mandarin Chinese has four tones. That seems odd enough to those of us who don't speak tonal languages, but really, tonal languages, just as often as not, have many more tones than four. Cantonese has seven six tones. A lot of Taiwanese Chinese have eight tones. Mandarin is the easy one. So there are cases where a language starts out complicated and gets easier. But the truth is that when that happens, it's because at some point, a whole lot of adults past the point that they can learn languages easily, learn that language, and shaved off a lot of the harder parts. So it's an unusual situation. It's not just what languages always do. But really, even you know, if we think about it, even you know that it couldn't be that it's natural for languages to simplify. Because think about how old language is. Homo sapiens is probably about 200,000 years old. Now, some people don't date language back that far, but anybody who is expert on the subject agrees that language has existed for several tens of millennia, certainly 80,000 years. Now, if language has been around that long and its natural tendency is to simplify, wouldn't all language just be dust by now? Wouldn't we all just be gargling if that were the natural tendency? You know, over some hundreds or maybe a couple thousand years is one thing, but language has been around for a very long time. It's almost as if there was an evolutionary model where everything, for some reason, got simpler. So that at one point we were human beings, but then because of this simplifying tendency, everybody just kept evolving until finally there was nothing but a whole lot of small angry clams. That's not how evolution works. That's not how language works. Let's listen to some languages. You know, English is a language, but I think we know enough about that. Here's some Zulu. Does this sound like something that's been simplifying over time? Here we go, even if you don't understand a word of it, just listen to it. My name is Hauika Malami fikile. It's Bongosami Nishala endaweni the Venus and Kundus, Nazali Lacona in manku Venus and Kundusi, Mankulangi Fisa Uguba Uttahotela, Idum Seven Sevenza. Janga manging is Sevenza etumazulogi, Nama Nai Varashi Zetu, doesn't sound simple to me. Or here is Georgian. No, this is not somebody on the streets of Savannah or Atlanta. We're talking about Georgia, the nation. And they have a language and big surprise. It's called Georgian. Listen to somebody speaking Georgian. I could not tell you what she's saying, but... I can tell that this is not a language that's on its way to some sort of clam-like simplification. So you can just hear it. If you think about the languages around the world, or, you know, if I think about them. There are, depending on how you count it, 6,000. Many people would prefer I say 7,000. Okay, I'm going to say it. 7,000. There you go. There's no simplificatory tendency. If you look at Native American languages, if you look at Bantu languages like Zulu, if you look at all of the languages of Australia, if you look at, frankly, the world's languages, they don't get simpler. And yet, there's always this idea that what a language does musically can be symbolized by music like this. But no, languages don't just take it all off. For those of you who maybe are language geeks, you may have picked up an idea that it isn't that languages have this single trajectory where they just become simpler and simpler and simpler, and finally you've got the clam and the amoeba or however this is supposed to go, but it's supposed to be that there's a cycle. So languages get simpler, and then they get complicated, and maybe that's how we got the complexity of languages like Latin and Sanskrit and Old English, and then they get simple again, and then they get complex. And we all love the cycle. I certainly love the cycle. When something is in a circular shape, you want to go squeeze it. That's the way life is. But, you know, that cycle idea comes from really one thing. It was one article written by one dead man back in 1970 about ancient Egyptian. And as always with these things, the actual article doesn't say what people said. What Hodge said about ancient Egyptian is that it started out fiercely complex in that way. And then for a while, it was moderately complex that way. And then it went back to the fierce. That's what he said. He didn't talk about a cycle from complex to simple to complex to simple. You kind of want it to go that way because cycles are so important. But the truth is that the idea that it's natural for languages to simplify when it's based largely on what people have seen with how English developed is kind of like looking at whales and moles and deciding that it's a natural tendency among mammals to lose hair, because whales and moles have so little of it. And you think, well, that's what happens with whales and moles, and especially if you find whales and moles fascinating, and who doesn't? I was saying bullerns. Well, then you might think that that's a natural tendency of mammals, but obviously most mammals keep their hair. Most mammals is basically the languages of the world. Got to watch out for this idea that language is simplified because you could, and people have written to me actually proposing this, which makes perfect sense. You could put a value judgment on this simplification, which can take you to some pretty sketchy places, just like the whole Sapir Wharf hypothesis that language channels thought. So, for example, there was a book that, for some reason, was sitting around in my house when I grew up. My mother was quite the language and linguistics geek, and we didn't really talk much about the subject, but she had Mario Pei books sitting around. Another one was a grand old book that I think a lot of people of the era, I'm beginning to be somebody of, an era, of the era, read, and it was called The Miracle of Language, and it was written by Charlton Laird, and you can tell from his name that he was somebody of another time. The book was written in 1953, and it was delightful. Well, I wouldn't recommend it now because as delightful as it was, a lot of its ideas are rather pipe-smokingly, nobody-knows-what-cholesterol-is outdated. Here's what he had to say about this simplificatory tendency, and he meant it straight. This was ordinary opinion. This is somebody who was tenured at a university, and I have to give you a trigger warning. This person used the words primitive and backward quite casually. So please understand when I read this, I'm not espousing this. But this is the sort of ideology that you can glean behind some people's take on this idea that languages simplify. Not all of yous, but this is the way this was often presented in the past. So I'm actually going to quote him. Here we go. Most primitive languages function by sticking inflectional bits to words. The use of position and sequence for grammar, however, is essentially different, and its cultural distribution is different it is not common among primitive languages it is found scatteringly among backward people siamese and animite are distributive um siamese and animite today we would say thai and vietnamese but it is characteristic of modern peoples and advanced languages many scholars and more particularly many anthropologists would insist that a movement from inflection As a grammatical device, toward distribution, seems to be a movement toward a modern world. As the forsaking of fascism, for democracy, seems to be a movement toward a modern world. And who shall say, in the intimate relations of man and society, of language and life, that they are not related? Now, that's what Laird thought. Laird wasn't innocent. And interesting, no modern anthropologist would agree with that perspective at all. He's writing from a very I love Lucy is two years old perspective. But the point is that if you read somebody saying that it's natural for languages to simplify as often as not, it's somebody smoking cigarettes in about 1949 who had no way of knowing as much about the languages of the world, even if they were a linguist, as we do now, for example to zero in on the sort of things that I want us to think about from now on. Hunchback of Notre Dame of 1939, there is a scene where Esmeralda is condemned to death. And here's a society where formal language is Latin and French is just the language of the streets, for the most part. So when Maureen O'Hara's Esmeralda's sentence is read out, this is very accurate in the movie, they have it read out in Latin. Coram Strigar demonstrata, et crimine patente, declaramus nos requirere em mendatione monoratis... What's he saying? He's demanding the death penalty. ...maximum nostri domine, clisi cathedralis, adquis sententiam in virtuti cujicista striga comes your capella in place de Notre-Dame executati sint. Now, if languages naturally simplify, then we're supposed to think that French, you know, especially as a language of the streets, the vulgar, the churls, French is simpler than Latin. But, you know, really, French did lose Latin's case marking on all the nouns, but the future endings and the conditional endings in French, all that is new. That did not come from Latin. Or, in French, one of the hardest things that I am quite sure I will never completely get is the liaison. And so, for example, little, petit, friend, ami, put, petit, and ami, together, you have to say petit dami, and all of a sudden the T that's only in the spelling, you have to pronounce it. Now, we kind of get used to that, especially if we've listened to a lot of French people singing songs. Don't worry, I'm not going to play one of those songs. But that's very complicated, and there's none of that in Latin. That's a complexity that crept in as Latin developed into this new language called French. And to the extent that one might say that French is a little bit easier on the brain than Latin. Again, that's because French is what happened when Latin was imposed on a lot of adults. So there was a little bit of streamlining there, but even then, only so much. Certainly, modern English is less complex than old English, but that's because of something that happened to it. You know, A train ran into it, except the trains were, were Vikings. But even now, the language isn't getting simpler. It's just that The suits don't want to tell you what the complexities are. When somebody says, hey, look at that. It's a gray ass squirrel, which people say all the time. The ass does not mean anything about the squirrel's buttocks. And it's not just profane. It means it's a squirrel that's gray counter to expectation. That's more complex. If you say, oh, look, there's a house being built across the street now. Well, if you were Abraham Lincoln, you would have said, oh, look, there's a house building across the street. The idea that now we have to say is being built is more complex. That is pushing the use of a passive marked form into places that a formal English speaker would not have thought proper 200 years ago. If in the black country, I promise this is the last time, I'm not is I bay and can't is call and shall is sha, All that stuff happened after the train wreck that made English what it is today. Those things are more complicated. When I talked about the vernacular men sucking on their Lucys, I didn't mean Lucy as in a woman. I meant Lucy's as in single cigarettes. But while we're on the topic of Lucy, Lucille Ball did star in a Broadway musical, and there is one little lyric in one of its utterly forgettable songs that I have always delighted in because of the perfect scansion. Here it is. This is Give a Little Whistle. This is a song most of you will never want to hear again, but just listen to the first lyrics of it. From now on I promise to behave I'll pack my gear and disappear from view From now on I'll huddle in the cave. but if in case you miss the face, they used to pester you just give those words as goofy as they are fit the melody so well the greeks would have loved it if they knew english and understood the appeal of lucille ball those are lyrics by carolyn lee but more to the point Think about that lyric. From now on, I promise to behave. I'll pack my bags and disappear from view. From now on, I'll huddle in a cave. And just in case you miss the face that used to pester you. Damn, that's good. But there are four things in that that are indicative. So from now on, I promise to behave. Instead of saying behave yourself. In any self-respecting Germanic language, it would be behave yourself, and you anger yourself, you remember yourself. There's too much self. It's a complexity about Germanic languages. You do everything to yourself. In English, that's really retreated to just a few things like behave yourself and perjure yourself and repeat yourself. For the most part, you just say behave. Okay, that's a simplification. Or... From now on, I promise to behave, but just in case you miss the face that used to pester you, the idea that she's talking to one person and saying you, that's a simplification. If this musical, Wildcat, had been produced in, say, 1300, it would be the face that used to pester thee. Okay, so simplification, but just in case you miss the face that used to pester you, used to? That's something that's crept into English over the past several hundred years. Nobody speaking Old English said anything about used to. Think about what an odd expression that is. You are used to it. You are utilized to. That's a weird thing. It's like figuring out that you have a tongue in your mouth. Used to. Odd. And it's new. It's more complex. Or something like, I'll huddle in a cave. A cave. That indefinite (laughs) article, once again, that's something that's crept in since... Old English. So the language is becoming more complicated. The lesson is something like this. Here is one of my favorite exchanges in Annie Hall. Listen. Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. It won't be expanding for billions of years yet, Alvy. And we've got to try and enjoy ourselves while we're here, huh? So, just like Brooklyn is not expanding, your language is not simplifying. You don't have to worry about this. Why is this important? Who cares? Who cares? Ella is behind me asking that question right now. Who cares about this? Well, actually, you should. And here's why. There are three reasons why. First of all, it's important to realize, if you're a language head, that English's development from what old English was like to its modern state was not normal. It was unusual. It's part of what makes English fun. But that's not how language writ large Really works. There's a way of looking at these things that social scientists have developed the idea that certain subjects of the typical psychological experiment are not representative of humanity because they're weird. In an acronymic sense, capital W-E-I-R-D, they are Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic people. That's not what most human beings are like. An analogy here, it's not that you could say that English is precisely Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. But then again, notice that actually you can. English is a very odd language in terms of its geopolitical history. It's not What language is in the way that the old time public linguists rather innocently thought. Second, nothing's wrong. If you're thinking that language simplifying is a symptom of a larger trend, which is that language is decaying, that it's somehow worse than it used to be. That's not true. Everything's going to be all right. And I know that you're expecting Marley in the background here, but honestly, that's not what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the song that I like when everything's all right. And no, it's not some treacly show tune. If you notice, what's playing behind me is Could It Be I'm Falling in Love by The Spinners. This is one of my five Favorite songs on Earth. Give a little whistle is definitely not one of them. Turn it up a little bit, Mike, because this is actually one of my favorite things in the world. This shows you that everything's alright, that somebody wrote this song. That's funny. And finally, third, if you understand that the language is not decaying under our feet, then you can enjoy being a spectator of what the new complexities in a language are going to be. In my Words on the Move book, I actually say that you don't watch a parade and wonder why everybody doesn't just sit still. Language is the same thing. The song in the back now is called I Love a Parade, and that's 1932. But listen to it. Think of this tune as how language really works if you don't happen to like the spinners. I love a parade, the tramping of feet. I love every beat I hear of a drum. I love a parade. When I hear a band, I just want to stand and cheer as they come. That rat a tat the of a horn, rather, da, da, da. a bright uniform, the of a drill, will give me a thrill. I the skill of anything in a time. You know what? It was a year ago now that I did my first show where I just ran my mouth for a half hour and thought of it as a risk. And you know, one of the funnest things about especially the solo shows is the male That I get from you guys. And I wanted to share two things this time. That first solo show that I did was about this backshift, this idea that when something becomes a thing, then the accent goes to the first syllable of the word. And I now have an example that I had not noticed before. This is Cary Grant in North by Northwest. Listen to how this man who learned to speak long, long, long before 1959 says Girl Scout. So you became a Girl Scout. A Girl Scout. So you see how he's saying it from a time when it wasn't as established. And we, of course, would say Girl Scout. So that's later than the Eddie Cantor example that I used from the early 30s. Girl Scout. I would like to credit... Somebody for giving me that, but I got it over the Twitter in a way that made it impossible for me to know the person's name. But you know who you are, and thank you for that. It also gave me an excuse to rewatch that exquisitely lit scene. And here is, this is just amazing, Chris Kelly, thank you forever for this. I have never gotten as much mail for anything on this show as that business of, once again, Lucille Ball and that way of saying, hey, I'm still getting it now. Finally, finally we have nailed down an actual usage of an American using hay in just that way. And you know who it is? It's Frank Sinatra. This is absolutely astounding. It is 1943, and here he is. Listen to how he brings on a song. Gentlemen of the armed forces, this is the hoodlum from Hoboken. I'd like to sing a tune for you. My name's Sinatra, and I hope you like it, Hey. Isn't that great? So there it is. I have heard from all of you about Ireland and South Africa. It's quite clear that the usage is well established in those places. I've also had a strange amount of mail from Rhode Island and Wisconsin about that hay. But this is a recording of an actual person from that time doing it. And I couldn't be more pleased. By the way, in case some of you are wondering, because I'm beginning to get asked about this in the mail, the answer is, next week, hello, Dolly, because it looks terrible, but you only live once, and fences, which I have missed because parenthood. In any case, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com, that's lexiconvalley at slate.com, to listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. The editor is, of course, Mike Vuolo, and I remain John McWhorter, and look forward to seeing you next time. If you hang around New York or Washington, D.C., Often if you're out and about, you'll find yourself sitting next to what you can glean are a bunch of professional commentators talking about what used to be called the issues of the day. And you wish that you could jump in and have some whiskey with them. Well, that problem has been solved. There is the political GabFest. This is a podcast here at Slate that features Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and David Plotz. It's basically informal and irreverent, and you get to listen in, and you feel like you're really there because, <laughs> frankly, you are. Stephen Colbert loves it. He has said everybody should listen to the Slate Political GabFest, and he's right. The hosts kind of push On each other, so it's not just people switching back and forth the way the show would be if it was on PBS in 1979. It's got a fizz to it. You also get the legal and sometimes even the philosophical dimensions of politics and governmental branches. It's really one of those things that makes you feel smarter, it makes you feel like you have a master's.